We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com B-E. How many times have you wanted to make a change, but you don't? You hesitate because the timing isn't right. You don't have all the tools you need. Things are perfect. You don't have all the questions answered. Yeah, that many times. So instead, you have an action. And in this conversation with Lindsay Lyons, you're going to find out that an action, especially for just clauses, is even more harmful than going and starting with what you have and where you are. Hey, all you Seen Elite listeners, Dr. Chris Jones here with another episode of Seen Elite. And you are going to love listening to Lindsay Lyons talk to us about all things educational justice. You see, Lindsay's an educational justice coach. She helps schools and districts create feminist, anti-racist curricula that challenges, affirms, and inspires all students. The conversation we have, though, doesn't just deal with that, although that's an underlying piece of all of it. The conversation we're having is about learning and how learning in schools needs to move away from just being performance-based. That's right talking about grades and so forth. We need to move from being an old saying here, a sage on a stage, to making content relevant, to unlock students' natural curiosity and passion for learning. Because student voice is where it's at. If we want to truly create educational equity, we have to amplify student voice. We want our students to be able to take their learning outside of the classroom. It has to be moving towards understanding and meaningfulness. If we're going to do that, there needs to be a stronger and ongoing connection with not just the students, but parents as well, because it's all about being a community. We have to stop worrying about being perfect and pausing as we move to make these super important changes. And if we work with students to teach them that action through choices allows us to move forward without being perfect, well, then we've pretty much done our job. Look, I could go all day about these good things that we heard from Lindsay, but why don't we do what I like to do best by getting started at getting better by listening to Lindsay Lyons herself on Seeing to Lead. If we think about like by not doing anything, often we are creating more harm and we have to ask people in order to do that, right? We have to have this constant stream of information from students and and, and getting to the student experience to really understand that. But if we think about the harm of inaction, it kind of reframes in our brain for us what that action step should be or should we do something? Should we wait for perfection? I also think that idea of moving forward collectively and with student voice sometimes is a bit more palatable for people because you can create the container for activism or civics education or civics engagement, whatever you want to call it, so that students can choose the topic they're most interested in. (laughs) 
Dr. Chris Jones here, and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thoughtful dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. Lindsay Lyons is an educational justice coach who helps schools and districts co-create feminist, anti-racist curricula that challenges, affirms, and inspires all students. A former New York City public school teacher, she holds a PhD in leadership and change and is the founder of the blog and podcast, Time for Teachership. She believes the secret sauce of educational equity is student voice. I'm really happy that I was able to make this connection with Lindsay and have her on the podcast today because the idea that she's an educational justice coach really piques my curiosity, but I love the idea that she believes in rocking the boat by challenging, affirming, and inspiring all students. Those are three very powerful words. So, Lindsay, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for coming on today. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So, I, I mentioned rocking the boat, and I'm I'm part of a group, Daniel Bauer's Mastermind, and we're all known as ruckus makers because we like to make a ruckus in education. You know, I, I've never heard of the title Educational Justice Coach before. So, do me a favor, fill the listeners in on, okay, so first, what is it? Second, how do you become that? And third, why did you become that? Yes. Oh my gosh, what a great question. And I have received that question so many times since I just basically created that title for myself. So that is a title that is a result of being uh, my own boss, so to speak. And so I was trying to think about, you know, what is it that I do? An educational consultant just did not have the same ring to it. So Coach, I mean, I actually used to be an athletic coach in the coach terms of the words. I coached boys varsity basketball in the Bronx, which is a really interesting thing for a white woman from upstate New York to do. But like turn the team around. We went from a a one win the season before I hopped on to like a 50-50. So that was that was a really good shift. But so I think about that coaching experience from an athletics point standpoint. And I was an athlete my whole life. And I think about, you know, instructional coaching as well, being at the heart of what I do really trying to have growth at the center of everything. Teacher growth, student growth, personal and professional growth. It's all just, we're all growing. And I think in the realm of justice and educational justice, it's so important to focus on that growth as opposed to perfection. Because perfection or the idea of striving toward perfection or this dream thing that is exactly right and we never make mistakes, that is just something that limits us. And it often prevents us from taking any sort of action to advance justice. And so we just kind of are stuck in this muck of injustice. And so for me, you know, justice is intersectional. My background and my my degree in undergrad was gender women's studies. So it's like this intersectional feminism that's at the core, this anti-racism that's at the core um, of all that I do. I taught emerging multilingual students in New York City and uh, my degree in in education is actually in special education. So thinking about students with IEP, so it's disability justice, um, it's multilingual justice and literacy justice. And thinking about all of those pieces and all the students in our in our spaces and all the teacher identities that we hold, right? Like how do we advance a better world? 
And often we talk about advancing a better world for students are going to become these great leaders. And I think about how do we help them be leaders now, right? In a way that's immediately applicable to our communities. So that's a little bit of a roundabout definition, uh, but that, that's what I would say I do. And I became it honestly from just from testing things out in my classroom as a teacher. And then my partner got a job out of state. So I was teaching in New York City. We moved to Massachusetts and I said, oh, I need a couple extra certifications to teach there. Let me just not do that. It will become a full-time coach and run my own business. That's awesome. You know, you said a couple things that I, I just want to throw a couple of phrases out and, and get your reaction to them from your explanation there. First of all, awesome that you're, you were boys basketball coach, jumped right into that. That's fantastic. When you're talking about coaching, what if I were to say to you, and, and what's your reaction to teaching is coaching? Mm. Oh my God. Yes. hundred percent. I, I, I would agree with that because I think when I acted as kind of, you know, the sage on the stage is the, the common phrase, but you know, the, the way that we typically are taught in teacher school or, or that I was taught, even in a quote unquote, like progressive program, I was still taught, you know, like, here are the things you're going to teach them. They're going to learn it and they're going to spit it back at you. And I think about all the things, I mean, as a parent of like an almost one-year-old now, I see how like kids' brains work. And I'm like, this is fascinating. Like, just how they learn the creativity, the like figuring out of patterns without me having to like show them that. I mean, just so many amazing things. And and so for me, it's really thinking about how do I guide them to find what works for them and how to like kind of remix all of the things that we're learning into something that's immediately relevant, pulls in their interests, pulls in their strengths, because we're often very deficit focused, but like, wow, this kid can make a documentary. So how do they make a documentary that actually informs someone about this? justice issue that I could never have thought of on my own. Like that's what's so exciting about school. And so that's what I think, you know, in terms of the coaching space, I am better as a coach than like kind of someone talking at students. I'm so glad you said that. And the, and the part you mentioned about deficit thinking, that's that's such a massive issue across education, actually across a lot of industries, not just a single out education. One of the things I thought of when you talked about coaching and getting people to progress. And the idea that they have the ability to do that is I was lucky enough to be a participant in a marine educators workshop down in Paris Island, where we went down and we basically went through the basic training aspects of Marines, which is very interesting. I mean, there's a ton of stories. That's for another that's for another show, but we got to ask questions anyways. We do a couple of things and we got to ask questions. And one one of the things the Marines said was a misconception about their branch of the military is that everybody just needs to mindlessly do what they're supposed to do. And they said that's different than what they actually teach, where, yes, it appears that way because everybody has the same vision and goal. But what they do is they gradually, the drill instructors, and we got to see this in action, gradually pull away from control over the recruits so that they make decisions on their own in a team-based environment because their thought is if they're in a very dangerous, oftentimes deadly situation, and something happens to the leader, which is likely to happen, that anybody can step forward and take the lead because they've been trained in that way and that they were pushed down to where they just take direction. All I can think of is that, isn't that the key to learning and understanding where the person that's doing the teaching gradually steps back and gives control over that to those other individuals? Oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think about like learning in school settings is often very performative. And and I am like, 
I am not uh, exempt from that. I was the kid who was like, if I don't get the straight A's, like, and I just put all of that pressure on myself, like <laughs> no one was making me do that. Although I do come from educator parents. So I'm sure that was like societally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They pushed on you a little bit. Absolutely. But I think it's so performative that we're doing things for a grade, which is why I think like we really want to coach and co-create projects that are like expanding beyond the classroom. Like what is the purpose beyond the grade? And if we can't answer an assessment's purpose beyond the grade or an audience beyond the teacher, then like, it's not good enough in my, in my mind, right? Like that's, that's part of it. We want students to be able to take that learning process outside of the classroom, outside of, it's not just preparing them for college, right? It's preparing them for life. It's preparing them for Saturday when they went to the grocery store and something happened or they had to calculate this thing or, you know, like life, right? Like whatever life looks like. Um, and, I, and I just think that that is such a powerful kind of a, a analogy that, that you read in our story that you shared, because I think that's the job, right? That's the dream is that we're preparing students for life like today, not tomorrow. And I think about that in, in terms of like subs, I, I would be able to have subs in my class and not really leave a lot of lesson plans, which I just saw a tweet today. as someone was like, never underestimate how long it takes to prep sub plans. And I used to say, absolutely. Once I shifted to like project-based learning and, and students being able to kind of learn on their own without me there, like I'm really, I, I am a coach. I don't even need to always be present. I'm a coach that can kind of tap in and out and, and students can, like you said in that example, kind of connect with the, their teammates, so to speak, or their classmates, figure it out on their own. And, and it's so much easier to take a mental health day, a personal day, a sick day, whatever, and let the kids go because they're motivated by the project they're working on because they co-created it and they're equipped through the coaching to take on learning themselves. So true. So true what you're saying. And it's funny because I, when I go into classrooms, I love being in classrooms and just doing some quick walkthroughs, but I like talking to the students when I go into classrooms. And what I'll do is I'll go up to students and I have three questions. And it's funny, some of the students know, so they shy away from me sometimes a little bit. <laughs> and I, I go in and I ask them, I, I say, so, okay, why are you learning what you're learning? Like, what's the big deal about what you're learning? And so they'll kind of fumble through that a little bit and answer that. And then I'll ask them, I'll say, so how do you know when you understand it? And so then they'll answer that. And then this, this is sometimes what hurts my feelings. I'll say, so how does the teacher know when you understand it? And more often than not, I get, well, I, I get a good grade. And I'm like, no, you were doing so well on the first two questions. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's so true. I'm, it, and you know, uh, this is not anything negative about teachers or anything like that. But it, but it's so true. The system that we're so entwined in has to do with that grade. And even when we sit and talk about not doing grades or changing grades, then it becomes the big sell is the parents. The parents will never accept that. Like, so, well, how do we tell kids what they're doing or how good they're doing if we don't have? that letter grade that's that's arbitrary and subjective anyways to forward off to the colleges so that we can get all the accolades with the colleges. It's just such a vicious cycle. Oh my gosh, yes. And and we, I was at a school that transitioned to standards-based grading and like competency-based education and all and all of that. And that was that was the huge piece, right? Was what will the parents think and what will the colleges think when we send these transcripts off? And so I think it is systemic in the sense that colleges also have to think about new ways. And honestly, I think, you know, AI, chat, GPT, all the things maybe are helping people rethink all of the things, right? Like assessment and like how we value like an applicant to a college 
Um, so I think all systemically that should change. But also I think that speaks to a lack of partnership with parents and, and the systems to support that for sure. I'm not putting this just on teachers, but like if we are partnering with parents, we have an ongoing communication they always know how students are doing, right? If students are so excited about the class, they're talking about it at the dinner table or, you know, early in the morning at breakfast or, you know, wherever, because they're like, that's just part of natural conversation. And like, there's a fusion of kind of like home and school. And so I think that also speaks to that that could be better. Perfect. And, you know, all this conversation leads is a great segue to the second question I wanted to ask you from your very first opening salvo, so to speak here. Here's another phrase for you. I just want to get your reaction from it. Perfectionism freezes us. It's too big. Yeah. I think so many teachers and leaders who I talk to about justice, like often one of the things I'll talk about is facilitating conversations with staff and students about racism, transphobia, you know, current events, election politics, you know, like all, all of the things that are like, oh, we don't want to go there. And people will say, I want to, but I am nervous. I am fearful. I, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to. It often comes from such a good place. I don't want to increase harm. I worked with a, a history department to rework their curriculum. And one of the arguments for not kind of moving a little bit faster, putting into putting it into place in, in the coming year, delaying it another one to two years was, well, we don't want to implement and, and do it in a harmful way. And my response was, well, the data you have shared with me from your students, particularly your Black students, have told you it is currently harming them. So, you know, like if we think about like, by not doing anything, often we are creating more harm and we have to ask people in order to do that, right? We have to have this constant stream of information from students and, and, and getting to the student experience to really understand that. But if we think about the harm of inaction, it kind of reframes in our brain for us what that action step should be or should we do something? Should we wait for perfection? I also think that idea of moving forward collectively and with student voice sometimes is a bit more palatable for people because you can create the container for activism or civics education or civics engagement, whatever you want to call it, so that students can choose the topic they're most interested in. So that way, when a parent comes in, because often we make those decisions thinking about that parent, right? That one parent, often a white, very well-resourced parent, right? If that parent that we're thinking of, and it's, I mean, that could be a whole other podcast. I've said, like, why are we thinking of that one parent <laughs> instead of all the other parents? Um, but if we think about that parent coming in to have a conversation about, oh, why are you doing this project? Why are you talking about this topic with my student or my child? It, it is much easier to talk to them to say, well, your child has the option to study whatever issue they are passionate about. Like I am presenting them with the opportunity to make an impact in their community to better the community. I think that's another piece too, like defining better for me, uh, one of the foundational agreements to a class community. And we, we do these class community agreements, you know, day one and come back to them over and over. For me, something that has to be part of that agreement list is that dignity can never be violated. So you can never violate another person's humanity or dignity or a group of people's humanity or dignity. Like that's just like a, we don't cross that line. And that opens it up then to within that container, any topic is, is on, on the table, right? And that is a much different conversation with a parent to say your child chose this topic or, you know, something like that, then I'm telling them they have to think this way, which is often the narrative about talking about things like this. 
So that's, and I'm, I'm glad you said narrative. Uh, that's such a fine line to walk and, and an uncomfortable line to walk. I mean, there's, we're asking people not to just get vulnerable because that's, that's difficult, but we're asking people to get vulnerable in a very real, uh, visceral way that is tied up in a lot of history, possibly their own personal history that they've been affected by in their own personal lives, not just the society around them, but their own personal lives. And sometimes it's, it's difficult to come to grips with that. So how leaders, leaders need this too, but how leaders help support teachers in classrooms navigate these conversations about race, gender, politics, current events, all of these things that you just said to me in a neutral way? Oh my God, so many layers to that first. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) I love this question. Let's lean into what you're really good at. (laughs) So first thing, and I don't know that leaders are going to be happy with me for this answer, but the first thing I would say, the best way to have teachers practice the skills to do that work is as the leader to use staff meetings and other gatherings of teachers to have those conversations. Now that can be so tricky, right? Because people are like, oh, we're not going to be talking politics with our staff. Like we're not going to open that can of worms. I know these six, you know, teachers voted for Trump and like these six are part of Black Lives Matter or, you know, whatever. Like we have to be able to do this work as adults if we are ever going to get close to doing it with students. And so the number one thing I would do is kind of flex your own facilitation muscles and build those up as a leader and, and go there with staff. It is like life-changing, culture-changing, and it's going to take some work. It's not like a one 60-minute staff meeting, but it is going to be transformational. And the things that they're going to learn there, oh my gosh, will just, it will immediately transcend into their interactions with students. So there's so many things that I, that I can say about, you know, how that would work. I would say, one, you want to have those agreements. So just like you would with a class, we would want to co-create those agreements. We would want to have a format where everyone feels heard. So I like circle as a literal protocol, like talking piece, everyone has a chance to speak kind of thing. Everyone listens, you know, as, as they're supposed to. But then I also think one of the things that's really been a shift for me in the past couple of years in doing this work is thinking about the emotion and, and actually naming emotion before anything else, before explaining, debating, discussing. So for example, a uh, conversation might be, okay, so this just happened, like some news event, right? And you you post a headline on the board or something. Everyone's going to take a moment with a talking piece and you have the option to share or pass. Share one word that is an emotion word about how you are feeling in this moment. So now it's like, okay, everyone can connect to the emotion, right? Like everyone's like, oh, you're feeling, you're feeling fearful. Like, oh, I don't like feeling afraid either. Like that's something I can connect with you as a human. And thinking about that is a good one. Another one is uh, thinking about underlying needs. So in a situation, right, like uh, thinking about child student to student conflict, teacher to teacher conflict, having that conflict in a discussion in a staff meeting about, about a current event, for example, what is the underlying need that's not being met? And if we can use the language of needs, it totally transforms the conversation. So this comes from restorative practices, but thinking about, you know, like, I, I use the acronym BASE, which I think is an adaptation of Glasser's five basic needs. So B is belonging. Is there a, a lack of belonging? You don't feel accepted. You don't feel like you're valued. You don't feel you're belong. Like that's hard. And if someone told me, wow, in a conversation about this, I feel a lack of belonging because I'm the only one who doesn't think this. I can at least empathize, you know, there. Um, another one is autonomy, survival. Like if you're just trying to survive, 
you have your head down in my class as a student. Like you didn't sleep last night because you worked 30 hours this week trying to like help your parents pay rent. Like, whoa, that's a, I'm now very much empathetic. I'm not like, why is your head down in my class? Right? Like, I mean, I'm just thinking about all these examples. And, and the fourth one, the E is enjoyment. So how do we bring joy into the experience of conversations even when they're hard, right? How do we find moments of levity and connection and joy in the hard stuff, which is all obviously taking a lot of time to practice. But that's why I think the staff meetings are a wonderful opportunity. Okay, so you heard it here first, listeners. Lindsay just laid out every leader's next year's worth of staff meetings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think about this and I think about some of the vision of the graduate work that we're doing and how how you build a statement that you own. And in faculty meetings, because, you know, listeners, some of, some of my listeners are going to have small faculties where they can do this and they could actually run it like a class almost. Other listeners, myself included, have larger faculties where it's, it's not that easy to be able to do that. It's unwieldy at that size. So realistically, when we're talking about something like that, I'm, I'm envisioning being able to take the faculty and break the faculty into groups and do that side group work. I'm just being completely honest and open as a leader. My fear is that when I break the faculty into those groups, I can't be at every group at the same time. And I'm not a controlling person, but I feel like I'm losing control. Then I feel like I'm going to miss out on something or there's going to be something that goes on that I don't know about um, that may be a, a valuable piece of the puzzle. Is there a way to deal with something like that? Is there a way to build up to something like that? I have a high level of trust in my faculty. So maybe it's a nosy thing that I just have to get get out of that. But I think that's a very real concern. I, I mean, I think I could empathize very deeply with with that, right? Even just thinking about facilitating, you know, from a facilitator lens, right? I've never I've never been the principal of school, but I have facilitated, you know, like a hundred participants and in, in now we're in breakout rooms or we're in different like spaces and having separate conversations, like. What is it? What, what should they talk about? So I totally empathize. And I think one, there's a couple ways that you could do it. One is just exactly like that. What you said, break them up into different groups. And then I would have like a, a core team of volunteers who are kind of starting to already do this work in their classrooms that you know, they're kind of like willing to have these kind of conversations or part of these conversations with their families, with their peer groups, with their staff members that they're close to, you know, whatever. And, and willing to kind of be a facilitator, I think in, in circle language is the keeper of the circle um, and kind of report back some themes. So I would always take notes when my students were in circle. I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, making eye contact and truly listening, but I would also take notes on the themes. And I would also take notes on like phrases that kind of like hit me in the gut. So that could be, I would often pose them in an academic sense as like, almost like a CNN fact checkers after a debate where it's like, was this true? And then honestly, like the next day we would, we would do, we would have a class lesson of like, let's investigate if these were true, like let's take out our laptops. So I, I think there's kind of a degree of that. Like you want to make space for almost debriefing the discussion and kind of pull those themes together. So like staff meeting one is the conversation. Staff meeting two is actually going to be like, okay, so here's some things that came up because things are going to come up and we want to make sure there's space to actually address them. The other option I think is to do like a, a, a fishbowl, which would be like really big uh, on the outer circle, but to just have the people who are willing to do this work be in the core. And obviously that's going to be really a different conversation than people who are being like voluntold to be in the center okay. group, right? Uh, but it, it at least generates the start of a conversation 
Um, and I would be really careful having been actually a participant in a, in a space like that, where I was told to be on the inside of the circle and other people were told to be on the inside of the circle, that um, kind of forced dynamic is not a good place to start with like a, I'm testing out this new thing. Like you really want people who are like, I am willing to do the emotional labor that is involved in this. Right, right. So I think that's a huge piece. Another, another option might be that you could break it up and say, so people who actually want to participate in a circle, we're going to do that with this group. Um, there is kind of like a, a video series or something, or like a, we recorded this teacher's class or something, doing something similar. Um, you're going to read an article about how to do this or something in this group. And so kind of like dividing it up by readiness. So you're going to read about it. You're going to maybe see it in action and reflect on it. And you're actually going to practice it and then kind of have these kind of levels of engagement might be an idea. Fantastic. And you know, it's funny because just as you said video, I was thinking to myself, I people give me a hard time about videos because I do videos each week. But um, I was thinking to myself, as you said that, what about a video of the people that are emotionally invested that you could share with staff? And the the reason I say that is because, so when we want to do Mindful Minute, and as part of our SEL curriculum, we had some teachers that were willing to leave that charge. And so they would sit and do mindful minute exercises with students at the beginning of class. Other teachers didn't feel comfortable doing it. And you can't really do a mindful minute or lead a mindful minute if, if the students know that you're, you're not buying what you're selling. So what we actually did is some of the teachers recorded their voice doing the mindful minute, gave that recording to the teacher, and then the teacher just hit play. Got the, got the class ready, hit play. I'm almost wondering if for work like this, we could do something like that, where the teacher is emotionally invested. Could They could be the inner circle of the fishbowl, and then anybody that watched the video could be the fishbowl, but it, it wouldn't be that, uh, that presence over their shoulder while they were involved in it. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that idea. Another thing I was thinking um, that transcends the mindful minute example and the teacher staff example is having students lead. So mindful minute, for example, I did never feel super confident in my mindful minute ability, but I would like try it out. And then one student saw me do it a couple of times. I'm like, okay, who can do it better? And so like, I would just invite students to lead it. And they were just like, yeah, like, this is so fun. I'm like, oh, great. Like I'm just enjoying like learning from you. And like, I think the same thing we have pulled in um, when I used to be a, a teacher at my school, we actually would pull in students to PDs, totally changes the dynamic, totally changes it because they're like, oh, students are hearing me. Like I might not say this thing that would be actually really like offensive or mean or whatever, because like now I'm aware of like a person that it would directly impact. And like, it's, it's terrible to think people are like harboring all those thoughts if students are not there or going to see them if they're not there. But like, I do think that idea of like, right. And, and we are doing this because of our students, because we want to improve the lives of our students. We are teachers to improve the lives of our students. Like it's okay that students are part of these conversations. Now I would caveat that by saying like, if we do anticipate like some harmful things being said that we don't throw students in there to like, you know, experience that. But I do think like students are so capable of doing this work. And, and my high school students have for sure led circles on topics of racism, sexism, and all the things that are just important to them. And they've actually designed the circles and facilitated them. So that lens of saying, well, this student design circle, like we're actually just helping them achieve, you know, from a teacher mind sometimes that might be reluctant to do this. We're actually the audience for their assessment. This is their assessment for, you know, um, this unit on sexism or whatever, like they're going to come do this circle and we have to participate and give them feedback on it. Like that's another kind of entry point in if you have a teacher who's like, I don't want to do this for myself, but I am passionate about student betterment and helping students. That's awesome. Supporting your teachers and students seems to be a struggle. They just don't seem to be engaged. 
You wish they would take more responsibility for their learning and culture of the building, but they just don't seem to be empowered enough to do it. So my question is, have you checked out the book Seeing to Lead yet? It's all about creating a true educational experience where learning, growth, leadership, and community take center stage. Full of strategies and resources, Seeing to Lead is about attaining that goal by employing a model that supports, engages, and empowers all individuals to become leaders themselves. Pick up a copy today at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com. Remember, you don't become a leader and then decide you need to support and recognize others more than yourself. It is the moment you realize it's about supporting and recognizing others that you become a leader. Seeingtolead.com. Now, you mentioned all these things. One of the things I'm thinking about when when you're having a circle or just from a student's everyday existence is a huge issue. But if I could just grab 30 seconds to a minute of your opinion, wall decorations, wall art, political statements on, on the walls racist statements on the walls, the anti-racist statements on the walls. Where do we go with that outside of the social studies classroom? Because then it becomes a story that if you put one up and you have the opposing view, it's objective. Mm. Ooh, 30 seconds. Okay. (laughs) All right, fine. I'll give you more time. (laughs) Um, Okay. Let me try to be very succinct. One, I think wall decorations don't define a culture. A culture defines a culture. So that is a huge piece. I see sometimes people use wall decorations and they'll put up this beautiful statement of inclusion and it's not an inclusive space, right? So that's that's a piece, right? Um, At the same time, I think you don't always need a counterpoint. So I think about, there's this beautiful quote, let me see if I can remember it here, by Jonathan Gold. And he talks about how it's, you know, in, in contrast to the idea that we must hear all sides, right? This idea of like, we have to hear all the sides. Well, all the sides aren't really valuable if one side is just like denigrating an entire group of people and removing their human dignity. So he says, talking about perspectives without talking about power can imply an equivalency of viewpoints that brings with it a very real danger of erasing injustice. And that to me is like it, right? Like we don't, if we're trying to be justice-centered, if we want a justice-centered classroom, a sense of belonging for everyone, even students, honestly, like even in like 100% like homogeneous classrooms, um, we have like all like advantaged identities in there. And like, you know, you're still part of like humanity, right? And Resmo Menicom talks about this idea. Sorry, I'm going way above 30 seconds that's, that's There's a reason I said 30 seconds. We'll get to it after. Keep rolling. You're doing great. So Resmo Menicom talks about this idea of soul harm on white bodies in the context of white body supremacy, he calls it white body supremacy. And and so he says there is a soul harm that happens to white people and white bodies as they participate uncritically in the system of, of white body supremacy. And so it actually harms people who are white, who are advantaged because of their whiteness to not do anything to advance racial justice. And I think that is a wonderful entryway into like, People who are saying, like, well, we here at my school or my district or whatever, you know, like, are we only have, we have 100% white population, which I don't even know if that place exists, but maybe, right? Like, 100%, like, it still applies, right? And it still is important to maintain human dignity and humanity for every group, regardless of who the students are in the classroom. Um, and, and so I think to that point, like, 
I, I, I'll speak to myself. Um, I had political statements up in a non-history classroom. I had the, you know, um, like all of the, the women's March, all of the Black Lives Matter posters, you know, like, because that is what my students needed to see. And my students felt an increased sense of belonging. Um, I, I hope from what I heard from the students who were willing to tell me about their perceptions of it, like, it felt like an inclusive space and it felt like a space of hope and possibility when all they heard around them was the news that like everyone hates everyone and the world is falling apart and there's so much oppression. It's like, we collectively can build this better world. Like it is possible and we will uphold people's humanity. I think that is a message and a hill that I'm willing to kind of like die on. <laughs> so that's awesome. important. Awesome. That's, that's incredibly important. So the reason I asked you that for in, in a short period of time is because I, I want to prove a point. It's, it's not black and white. You know, people so want that just, if okay, right or wrong, black or white, and that's the answer. So either put the poster up or don't put the poster up. It's, and what I'm hearing you say is it's not about the sign. We have to transcend the idea that it's about the sign. It's, it's about the culture in the area, in the space. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you can't like, uh, you know, uh, it's, it, we're recording this in February. So like, you know, you can't like Black History Month poster your walls and then say like, we are all about like, you know, racial justice in this class because we're doing Black History Month and it's on our walls. Like, nope, that's not, that's not the baseline. That is not <laughs> yeah. justice. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a great example because there are a lot of places that, that have all these um, Black History Month um, posters, programs, assemblies, and that's not quite the story. Right. I would ask, like, are your Black students involved in making school policy? Like, that might be more just to see. <laughs> you know? Right, right. So you did a lot of talking. You gave, you gave examples about leadership and staff meetings and in the classroom. You have a boot camp curriculum on your website. And I'm going to hook your website up in, um, in the show notes or link it up in the show notes. But you have a boot camp curriculum. Why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about that? Because I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to check out some of these things that you have to offer. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So curriculum bootcamp is, is kind of like uh, my like most favorite thing about education and working with teachers distilled into just a couple of days. So this is like all the things that bring joy and justice back into teaching that I think sometimes can feel like they're missing on a day-to-day -day basis. So basically it is two days typically with a department where the teachers just get the freedom and creative space to just be with each other in co-creation and create a justice-centered unit. So it advances racial justice, gender justice, intersectional justice. Like that is at the core. We create a driving question that students are grappling with throughout the unit. And ultimately it ends in some sort of civic action. So students are actually using whatever they're learning. Doesn't matter the content area. This could be PE. This could be foreign language. This could be like math. I mean, some really cool ideas have come out of like, like math could be fantastically interesting if we let it be, right? Uh, and so we just create the outline of a unit all the way down to the lesson level in two days. And so I think this is also a response to wow, we want to start from scratch or, or, or wow, we realize there's so many gaps in our curriculum. Um, and, and I always use the phrase add diversity and stir. You can't add diversity and stir your way into like a better curriculum, right? You need to like start from the ground up and that terrifies people. So it's like, okay, if we can create a container where it happens in just two days, that now feels a lot more doable than this is going to be a five-year process. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, for anybody wondering about that, the idea of two days writing curriculum, because sometimes that's, that seems daunting to people, like you said, 
Um, especially if, hey, what do you mean? I have a curriculum. Why do I need to rewrite the whole thing instead of add stuff? Uh, another piece about you that's really interesting that I wanted to mention that will, I think if people check this out, they'll be more interested in your curriculum bootcamp. Talk to us about your podcast because you have a podcast as well. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So this uh, kind of came out of a blog and then I was like, I'm an echo chamber of myself and I want to like talk to other people. <laughs> so I have learned so much from the amazing guests that are that are on the podcast and Dr. Jones, I'm hoping will be on, a guest on the podcast too soon. <laughs> oh, it was fine. Um, Seeing you called me out on the air. I'll, I'll be a podcast. <laughs> amazing. I'm so excited. Um, so we've had some really <laughs> cool uh, guests and some really cool like kind of like series around curriculum planning around um, school policy and students and school boards and things like this. Um, basically, it's the idea of like, how do we teach and lead for justice? in school spaces? How do we amplify student voice in a meaningful way? And it's really there's some how to episodes like that are about 20 minutes that are quick commute to work, like you can just listen to that and have like a practical ready to go strategy. There's always like a quick template that you can get as like an episode freebie. Um, and the guests just, they just bring the brilliance. So theirs are usually like, how have we led curriculum? Um, Goldie Muhammad, Dr. Goldie Muhammad is going to be on the podcast soon. So that'll be an exciting one to listen to. Um, just like, how do you actually do this stuff? So I, I like to think of it as like uh, uh kind of my researcher brain is like the theory, but then also the teacher brain is like the practice. So how do we connect theory to practice? So three things about that. First, I'm super excited about you asking me to be on the podcast. So yes, definitely. Amazing. Second, when you started mentioning your guests that you just had a huge smile. Now we're not videoing this, but you just got all excited about it. So you know that your heart is into it and you're passionate about it. And third, the big thing, resources, templates, and strategies. Yes. I mean, right there at your fingertips. So people definitely have to check that out. And why don't you let people know the title of it so they can search it wherever they listen? Absolutely. It's Time for Teachership, which is actually a really interesting idea. I just came up with that off the of, top of my head. And then I looked into it. And I was like, oh, this is an actual academic construct where like teachers are leaders and leaders are intimately involved in like the day-to-day -day instruction of the classroom. So I love it. See, you were ahead of the curve. Check yes. you out. <laughs> So we're getting near the end. You've said a ton, but I do have two questions that I ask every guest on the show. The first one, if you were in the current position you are, because you were a teacher, now you're doing your own business, but you're still involved in it, in education. If you were not involved in education, who, not what would you be? Such a hard question because my brain defaults to the what, but I like, I think Matt Woods is, is the person who responded in this way um, where he was talking about kind of like, it would it wouldn't be great. I think he said he was going to be lost or something. And so those are all the things I could think about, right? Like I I would probably be a, like the what would probably be like a justice advocate in some other realm, but like the 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 who would be like I would be a frustrated individual. I think I get frustrated <laughs> with adults sometimes. Like I love yeah. the energy and creativity and curiosity of kids. Um, and so I would like have a longing for that. And I would also I think be less patient. Kids have taught me a lot of patience. I still have a ways to go, but man, would I be less patient? <laughs> Yeah, that's excellent. You know, that question, it's funny, the different answers that I get. I've had everything from people put two different people like celebrities together as one person and say, this is who I'd be. I had another individual, it was, I think it was Chris Dodge that uh, did this. Uh, really, he's a fantastic leader. He just recently went into the Worcester public school system, but he did it from a negative viewpoint. He sat down and looked at all the things that he had because of education and then he said, he took those away. And what he had left is what he said, who he'd be. Wow. 
yeah, it was really, it was, you know, so this podcast, totally selfish. I learn things all the time from people. So just that whole thought process of looking at it from the other way. You're totally sharing our podcasting secrets. Like this is why we got into podcasting to learn from everybody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to- totally selfish. <laughs> so the final question, and you know, you've said so much today. And just in this short period of time that we've been together, you've you've given so many people so many things to think about and and move forward with. What's the most important piece of advice you'd give to teachers and leaders as they work to better support, engage, and empower those they serve? Yeah. So I think one is be adaptive in your leadership. So have an adaptive leadership kind of stance. The things that I, I think it's Heifetz, Grashow, and Linsky who talk about the habits, beliefs, and loyalties that underlie a problem, like an adaptive challenge, are really what we have to unearth and address. We so rarely address those. We tiptoe around them. We're afraid to make mistakes as we talked about, right? Like all the things and we don't get to them. And and so we PD our way out of things, but we never actually get out of the things. So like five years later, that strategic plan that we worked on, we're working on the same things, right? Because we don't address them as adaptive challenges. So I think that's huge. And then Often I, ha- so I have a, um, a worksheet, actually, I can, uh, we'll be able to, I think like that in the show notes for you all uh, around high fits, Grasho and Linsky's like strategies for identifying, are you working with an adaptive challenge? So I think that's like step one is, is it adaptive? But then step two is like, what do you actually do with that like, information? Right. And I think so much of what I've talked about historically in the last, you know, few years has been about like just identifying it as adaptive, but then what do you actually do? I think the answer is shared leadership. So this stuff can't be a top down, like this is the way forward. It has to be co-created. And I think we get close with things like distributive leadership. And I'm getting into theory a little bit here, but I think shared leadership is really different and unique to me because it is thinking about the students. It is thinking about the family members, the community members, like all of the stakeholders, not just the staff of a school. And that I think is truly where the richness happens. So as like a next step, I mean, Street Data is an amazing book that just came out, I think last year. Uh, fantastic. There's They actually have a podcast now, Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby uh, started a podcast based on it called Street Data Pod. All sorts of ways to try to in kind of learn from students about what their experience and perceptions of school are in a really kind of like non-quantitative, uh, more qualitative way that's just absolutely beautiful and I think transformational for a school. You just keep dropping resources. I, I'm it's so just sorry. like, no, you're, you're apologizing for dropping resources. Like, I'm pushing a button, go. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, um, I mean, I'm definitely going to have to check that book out. Um, street at, and the podcast, Street Data Pod. At, look, we're always interested in, if we're interested in doing what, what's best for students, we need to make sure we're getting information from students, what works best for them. Just like if we're if we're trying to do what's best for teachers, we have to we have to listen to them as well. So I just appreciate you so much for coming on the show and sharing all this knowledge and wisdom and um, you know, strategies and templates, even you you shared that stuff too. So if people want to, I can't imagine that they wouldn't after listening to you. If people want to, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, I think my website has a bunch of like additional free resources. So lindsaybethlyons.com is the is that. And it also links to the podcast, the blog, all the things. Uh, my email is on there as well. I think most social media platforms I'm not super active in. I am not a super big social media person, which is like a weird thing maybe for a millennial to say, but I am Lindsay Beth Lyons at most places. And Twitter, I think is Lindsay B. Lyons. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Again, really, I appreciate it. You said some fantastic things and I've learned so much from just listening to you um, for this time. 
Wow, that means so much. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Jones. This is amazing. Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step, be sure to take action on something you heard here today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Seeing to Lead podcast. If you would like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at Dr. C.S. Jones. If you've gotten any value from the Seeing to Lead podcast today, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show, leaving an honest rating and review, and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Also, one last thing. Have you had a chance to pick up my latest five-star rated book yet? Grab your copy of Seeing to Lead anywhere you buy books or at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com where you can learn more and continue to improve. Now go have a successful week. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E.